0: Today, on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Philomena Trindade. Yay,
1: she's our friend. She's, she's a friend awesome. of the
0: show. She is? Well, this is the first time she's been on. How is she a friend of the show?
1: I'm just putting it out there in the universe.
0: Oh, I see. Wishful thinking? Yep. Okay.
1: The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease, here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report. Hello. Wow, that was really excited. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. <laughs> Welcome to The Lab Report. Welcome, everyone.
0: Yes. Young and old to The Lab Report. <laughs> We are here. We're here. We still got things to talk about. We got
1: lots to say. We've
0: got people to talk to today. Big
1: day today, Michael. We have
0: Dr. Filomena Trindade, the rock star, the IFM speaker. That's right. The A4M MMI speaker. Mm hmm.
1: And there's, she's I'm sure a celebrity. Everyone, everyone knows her. She's right? a celebrity. She Let's kinda, just... She's like the person who needs no introduction, but...
0: But here we are introducing her <laughs> as if she needs one.
1: Right. But before we get to that segment, real quick, if you like what you hear in the Lab Report podcast, you can go to iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe, rate us, write a review. You can email any feedback to podcast at gdx.net. Do you have a question? We'd be glad to hear anything you got.
0: Is it the question of the day? It could be. Email us, podcast at gdx.net.
1: Great. Well, what are we going to talk to Dr. Trindati about?
0: We're probably, you know, she talks a lot about and lectures on diabetes. She lectures on hormones. (laughs) She lectures on HPA axis dysfunction. She's got a lot of history and knowledge about the ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting, all those things. All things functional medicine, specialty lab testing, and integrative therapeutics, right? She's going to pull it all together for us. This is going to be awesome, and I think we should not waste any more time talking. Let's call her. Let's call her right now. So yeah, today we have Dr. Philomena Trindade. Super excited to Yay. have Dr. Trindade. She's done multiple webinars for us. She's functional medicine speaker. Patty, why don't you go ahead and, and tell us a little bit more about Dr. Trindade.
1: Well, in addition to being our friend, and yes. I don't know if she's our friend, but I'm pretending she's my friend. So like let's just so. say she's our friend. Definitely our friend. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Trindade is not only our friend, she's also a teacher, an author, an internationally sought-after lecturer in functional medicine. She's actually on faculty at the IFM, so most of you have probably heard her speak there. She's also been speaking for A4M as well. She's got a bachelor's degree in biology, a master's in public health. She's a family practice physician who's been in clinical practice for over 23 years. She's also extensively published in many Journals and textbooks, but currently she's very active in her SEDATE certification program where she mentors other healthcare providers and provides and leads retreats in the Azores, which is her home. And in fact, we're speaking to her live from the Azores right now. Right. Hi, Filomena. Hi,
0: hey. thank you so much for being Hi. on with us.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah, you're very welcome. So, I'll
2: never miss an opportunity to talk to the
0: two of you ever. <laughs> <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> you know, one of my f- kind of first questions is, you know, you speak a lot about diabetes as a clinician. You lecture a lot on diabetes. It's certainly a a big problem when it comes to the overall healthcare burden and challenges. But I'm just wondering, from a personal standpoint, what what made you kind of go into this specialty of diabetes
2: as a clinician? Well, more than anything, it was sort of serendipity. But I think it really stems from the fact that I like to get to the root cause. You know, I like to unravel everything and really sort of uh, spill the guts or look for what makes something tick. You know, what is really down in the sort of down and dirty? What's the heart of everything? So I had this uh, real problem before I went into functional medicine and did the fellowship and, and started teaching in the fellowship at MMI now, uh, used to be through the University of South Florida School of Medicine. Before I did all that and I was just in clinical practice and I was really trying to change my patients' lives to figure out what can I do to help them help themselves and, you know, what is sort of the root cause of all this diabetes that I'm seeing, particularly type 2, but also this obesity. And I've always been told that the reason why we had such high rates of diabetes, type two especially was because we had high rates of obesity and even visceral adiposity. But then I started seeing patients that were thin. And even when you measured body composition, they were not by any means obese or even overweight or even having increased visceral adiposity. And so I'm like, this doesn't make sense. It can't just be due to visceral adiposity or obesity. There's got to be another reason. And so that sort of led me onto this detective, if you will, path and trying to figure out what do I do to help my patients because I feel that the biggest sort of risk for death, in a sense, is diabetes or diabesity. And diabetes doesn't mean that you necessarily have to have both obesity and diabetes, but you can have the complications thereof as well. And when we look at statistics, we see that insulin resistance and glucose tolerance, prediabetes, as well as type 2 diabetes are just, you know... Increasing at alarming rate, and not just in adults, but especially in our adolescents and even in young children. So, I really wanted to try and figure out what else contributes to that because I don't believe that it's all in patients who are overweight or obese or have increased visceral adiposity. I'm not saying that that isn't the case, and and we do have literature supporting that. But when you look at statistics, that only accounts for about 40% of diabetics. So, how do I find the other 60 and how can I avoid? Uh, or help my patients avoid developing it in the first place. So then I started getting into other different researchers, like Barbara Corky, for example, who talks about the problem being damage to the pancreatic beta cell, and David Putzner, who's looking at the continuum of diabetes and looking at pancreatic beta cell function and how can you determine just how far along that pathway someone is. And so I started getting really... Intrigued, but also really excited about, you know, trying to diagnose patients early. You know, knowing that even when the fasting insulin is normal, you can have an elevated postprandial, and those patients are at risk because it's really about the insulin, not just about the glucose. So that made me really excited because I felt like this is something that we can prevent. This is something I can take to my patients and I can show them how to prevent, not just reverse type two diabetes, which is completely doable. And I've been lucky enough to see that happen with many of my patients, but to diagnose it early and avoid the complications and keep patients from progressing or even reversing it because what we know is if someone is sort of on that continuum, so they develop insulin resistance, and let's say they don't progress to pre-diabetes or diabetes because we, we know we have twice as many pre-diabetics as we have diabetics and they suffer the same consequences unfortunately in terms of you know, the health effects. But even if someone's just insulin resistant and they don't progress, they're still at risk because it's all about, you know, the problems with insulin and the whole reasons why they developed insulin resistance in the first place. So that's really what sort of made me excited because this is something that I could take to my patients and actually make a
0: difference. Right. Cool. That's that's all really interesting, and I think one of the things that always stands out to me is when you present some of the data around the the population that are pre-diabetic or diabetic that don't fit that standard mold. You know, the 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 standard overweight or obese as we right. think being associated with metabolic syndrome, and it, it begs the question: at this point in your practice, are you pretty much just screening everyone for? you know, elevated insulin levels and, and insulin resistance. Is that kind of where this has taken you or are you still looking out for certain signs?
2: No, I, de- I definitely look for certain signs because, you know, I'm all about how much can we glean from the physical exam and someone's, you know, prior history, not just their medical history, but their social history, their hobbies, you know, you name it. But also looking at the fact that we know that 25% of completely normal weight patients, actually it's more than 25, it's, it's almost 30% of those patients who are at normal weight, normal body composition, walking into your office are insulin resistant. Actually, they can even fulfill criteria for the cardiometabolic syndrome, so yes, I screen all my patients. Mm-hmm. I really start with my physical exam and sort of my clinical suspicion, because we don't have a lot of tools for early diagnosis, I mean, we have adiponectin, we know adiponectin decreases before insulin increases, for example, mm-hmm. particularly if you're looking at fasting insulin. But the fact is that now we know some people maintain their adiponectin levels and they may be already on um, the insulin resistant. So, yes, I pretty much have a high index of suspicion. Even if someone's fasting insulin is totally normal, let's say their hemoglobin A1C is totally normal, I will do a postprandial, like a 30-minute, I usually like doing a 30-minute and an hour insulin level. And, you know, I have yet to say there isn't any of those patients that they didn't have an elevator postprandial, oh. And of course, oh. you're sort of starting. That That's sort of the basics. You just need to figure out what what was the trigger, what caused it, because it's so much easier to reverse than if they're already uh, pre-diabetic or even just glucose tolerance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that whole continuum. The earlier you can catch, the easier it is to reverse.
0: Yeah. And from an intervention standpoint, obviously, you know, diet modification is a huge player in in what you're going to do clinically for these individuals. And I know also you've had a lot of experience with the ketogenic diet. And so I'm kind of wondering at what point in, in that spectrum of insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, are you considering introducing the ketogenic diet on a particular patient?
2: Well, it really depends on the patient. So this is personalized medicine, right? So some patients may be more apt to adopt or maybe easier for them to integrate the ketogenic diet. Usually, what I do is I start with intermittent fasting, and I like doing intermittent fasting like at least twelve hours, four or five days per week, if we're able to. You know, with some patients, you may not be able to because they may be having more hypoglycemic episodes, and it really depends on their medication or they are not. So you still have to personalize it. But I usually try to get all my patients to do some type of intermittent fasting, and I like the intermittent fasting where you're going from dinner. Uh, one night till breakfast the next morning and make sure that they're having at least 12 hours. And then I like doing incrementally increasing it to 14 hours, 16 hours. Usually to start off with, sometimes 12 hours is enough, sometimes it's not. You know, it, it all depends sort of on the patient. But it, ideally, I'd like to have them at least two or three days a week where they do 16 hours and then the rest where they try to do at least 12 hours. If they're able to maintain that, and let's say that. They're not having any hypoglycemic episodes. I will try them, even if not in a full in a complete ketogenic diet, at least a partially ketogenic diet or having them in intermittent ketosis Mm -hmm. just because of the health benefits. And by intermittent ketosis, I mean those patients that may be in ketosis part of the day, but maybe they're not all day long. So maybe let's say in the morning they are, but by the dinner time, maybe they won't be in, in ketosis anymore. Really depends. Other patients especially those patients that, let's say, have already a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. In many cases, they may need to be in full-blown ketosis before we can sort of reverse the uh, type 2 diabetes. But in many cases, it's not just about the diet. It's also about the lifestyle and the amount of stress in their lives. Because I truly believe that when you look at the literature about ketogenic diets in general, about 13% of the people are said to not be able to go into ketosis. I have not had that experience with my patients. Mm. Now, granted, you know, I don't see thousands and thousands of patients a year, but I see a fair share. And what I find is when you personalize it to that patient, in many cases, actually in all cases, I've not yet had anyone that could not go into ketosis. But having said that, you really need to look at all these different factors. For example, if they're really stressed or they have a high-stress job and their cortisol is through the roof no matter what diet you put them on, it's going to be really hard to get them into ketosis, Mm -hmm. right? Because if they're elevated cortisol, that's going to increase insulin, you know, they're inflamed. But when you try to control for all that and you really try to get their heart rate variability up and their stress level down and their cortisol levels down, and you really work to see sort of what are all the triggers. In other words, why do they become type 2 diabetic or insulin resistant? Is there toxins? Is there a hidden infection? Is there a hormone imbalance elsewhere, you know? because we know insulin is a major hormone with a lot of downstream effects, you can have hormone abnormalities and the other hormones that could be causing the insulin resistance. And then you look at what's going on with their digestion and their assimilation and their gut microbiome and you look at that and take all those into account, it's much easier to then try and not just regulate your blood sugar, but also get them into ketosis. Right.
1: Yeah. And actually, you know, Michael and I have focused a lot on gut health and, and digestion absorption in the first several episodes of this podcast. And we talked a lot about how the HPA axis interacts with the gut and all the things you can see from that. But Mm -hmm. the bigger question, you know, even when we had Liz Lipsky on the show and we talked a lot about dietary changes, like you're talking ketogenic diet and fasting diets, are there specific things that concern you about the microbiome and what are the things you're watching out for in the GI tract with dietary changes and insulin resistance, for example?
2: That's a great question because one thing that I did in the very beginning is, and first of all, let me just back up and say, when I talk about the ketogenic diet, we're not talking about the you know, 1936 typical ketogenic diet. We're talking about the modified ketogenic diet where, yes, you're getting into ketosis and you're eating high amounts of fat, but it's healthier fat. And we're also not stopping any of the green leafy vegetables or any vegetables at all. And we may even be including some fruits, but they're going to be the very low glycemic load fruits. And of course, you have to balance it out to make sure that when they're ingesting, that they're staying in ketosis. So they're eating adequate fat and, and healthy fat at that. Right. Got it. Right. So I think it's really important, first of all, that we look at so the, the modified ketogenic diet, or what I call a healthy ketogenic diet. Because <laughs> when I first started out, you know, even just educate patients about going into ketosis, undoubtedly, they would go to Dr. Google, and they would read all kinds of information, sometimes misinformation. Right. And you know, I, I saw the effects on their gut in not a good way. Because when you go into a ketogenic diet where you're not increasing lots of fiber, and lots of fiber for me is at least 35 grams of fiber. Some people may need a little bit higher, but it's harder for them to in many cases stay in ketosis. And they're eating their 10 to 12 servings of vegetables and fruit. I include two servings of fruit, but the very low glycemic low fruits per day. When you do that, I don't see a big changes in the microbiome. But when you don't, when you go into a very high-fat diet and sometimes not necessarily a healthy fat at that, I've seen dramatic, unwanted changes in the gut microbiome. But when you really increase the fiber and the green leafy vegetables, they're able to get the benefits of being in a ketogenic diet and not have the sort of bad effects on the gut microbiome. But again, some of this, I really had to learn through experience and not necessarily, especially in the early days, through any literature.
1: Yeah. And just as a follow-up, just as a personal experience. Michael and I have actually had dinner with you, Philomena, and you're speaking about green leafy vegetables. We've seen you eat enormous amounts of vegetables per meal. Am I right, Michael? <laughs> and maintain ketosis. That's right. We've witnessed this firsthand. <laughs>
0: And, you know, I think it's interesting, too, you mentioned that a lot of times you're actually starting with intermittent fasting for these patients and maybe depending on the ones that are going to be more likely to adopt that as compared to a ketogenic diet. But do you feel like instigating that intermittent fasting both helps with people going into ketosis, at least partially? And is it something like a helps with the, the beta cells of the pancreas and the pancreatic dysfunction? Is it kind of like a kickstarter for that, you think?
2: Yes, yes to both. I think number one, even if someone is not going into ketosis or I'm not putting them on a ketogenic type diet, intermittent fasting, you know, there's uh we now have some research on showing that it can actually be beneficial, both because it can lower LPS, but in addition, it just going into ketosis can really help insulin resistance in and of itself in terms of you know the pancreatic beta cell healing, but also I think in general in terms of decreasing inflammation and helping detoxification. Of course, it's also important that you're not just doing intermittent fasting and then eating, you know, the horrible American diet. But I've seen it in both. So even in patients that are not going to go into ketosis, seeing great benefits of intermittent fasting, but also in those who are used to eating, you know, every four hours, for example, and during the night, maybe they'll, they're, they can go six hours uh, or even eight hours, but they've never been able to go 10, 12, 14 or 16. It's a good way to sort of graduate them in. But I like using it in both instances. So even just the intermittent fasting on patients who I may not be putting in ketosis, although they may be still on a very low-carb diet uh, versus on those that I'm sort of prepping to go into ketosis.
0: Got it. And just uh, one more follow-up, I guess, on the people that you have going through more of a a severe ketosis. What are some things that you watch out for from just a clinical presentation standpoint of maybe, you know, things to know about, you know, pitfalls that some clinicians who are just getting started and, and aren't as familiar with using the ketogenic diet in practice, what should they be looking out for?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, I really try to personalize it for that patient, like really understand... What they're like, what their lifestyle is like, what are they doing now, and what is the sort of the best way to introduce it, number one. Number two, I think it's really important to educate patients that you can't just put everyone into ketosis right away. If someone is highly toxic, you're going to be making them even more toxic. You're you're sort of going to upregulate, especially their phase one, and you really need to make sure that you're supporting phase two. So I always take my patients to a little bit of a detox before they go into full ketosis and I do it mostly with food, and then I may add some medical foods or even just supplementation in terms of you know, making sure that they need um, extra methylation support, that they're getting it, and that we're giving plenty of glutathione support, for instance. So that, I think, is key because most of us walking around in today's world are pretty toxic, mm-hmm. you know, just by virtue of you know, where we live and what we've done to our planet, so to speak. So that, I think, is really, really important to start off with. The other thing is I think that some of my colleagues think that if you put patients, you know, if you give them sufficient fiber, that you're not going to be able to get them in ketosis. That's not true. And that's not my experience. And, and I did this personally. I and two of my friends back in 2011, 2010, 2011, when IFM first developed the energy module and we learned all about the mitochondria and how important ketosis, you know, could be in terms of helping the mitochondria. The three of us went into ketosis. And two of us did it for a year. The other person ended up developing a kidney stone. Hmm. And I really think that 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 was part of also of what you're eating. You you do have to be careful. Uh, You have to be careful about the oxalates and the fact that you can get stones. I have never seen that happen with my patients because I think I give them so much stuff to help them to detox. But I also put them on a probiotic. I make sure that they are Eating fermented foods, especially fermented with lactobacillus plantarum, which helps degrade oxalates and histamine also, and we have good studies on it in terms of helping reverse insulin resistance. So I think if you look at sort of the terrain and you try to prepare your patients as much as possible of looking at the mug gut microbiome and not forgetting about helping them detox, especially before you put them in ketosis, making sure that they're eating sufficient fat and that it's healthy fat, but also that they are especially, you know, that you're doing all that you can to help and promote, you know, the gut microbiome because if they're just eating lots of fat and it's not the healthy type of fat, you can negatively impact the the gut microbiome. So it's not just about the fat, it's also about the fiber and supporting the gut microbiome as much as you can. And I think it's important too that we try and and look at sort of what is the impact that we're going to have in our patients? Is this going to be something that's highly stressful and it's going to make them even, you know, they're more stressed than they already are. Then I I think maybe it's not the best type of diet to put them on. But I always say that a well-educated patient is not only a compliant patient, but it's a successful patient. So I really take a lot of time in explaining this to to patients and making sure that it's something that they're willing to do. You know, you have to look at the risks and the benefits or the pros and cons. And in many cases, once they really understand and they're prepared, you know, before they start their diet, it helps greatly. And that's something that in the beginning, I don't think I was very good at uh, yeah. with patients when I first started doing it. Maybe because I just assumed, you know, I had done it myself. And so I just assumed, you know, okay, patients are just going to, it's the knowledge is just going to lose, you know, from me <laughs> unto them. <laughs> so it took some time to really understand. Also, too, that some people learn at different rates. You know, some patients you can just say it once and boom, okay, they're out the door and they can do it. But many really need that hand-holding effect, and they also need to have resources. So I think it's really important that whatever we say, we give them handouts and we give them support, and that we sort of manage where they're getting their information from, because there's a lot of information out there, and some of it is not sort of the best, or it's not not always completely accurate either.
1: Yeah. And so we're talking about how, you know, these dietary changes can affect the microbiome. You mentioned lactobacillus plantarum is something that you might think about. We talked about the HPA axis in the gut. So that brings up this whole concept of testing. Like, do you test? Where do you start with testing when it comes to diabetes? What do you think about when you're choosing tests? There's GI tests, there's hormonal tests, there's nutritional tests. How do you think about testing in these patients?
2: So two basic tests that I do, or I try to do on most of my patients. Sometimes with some changes, but in general, I'm able to do it in even in my antigen patients is a Nutraval and a GI effect. And then the the hormone testing, it depends. You know, I have a lot of patients that come to me for hormones, but I tell them, you know, I'm not just going to be looking at your hormones. We need to look at, you know, everything that's going on in your body, your physiology and metabolism, and then we'll we'll work on hormones, but you need to allow me to do a good sort of, you know, functional medicine protocol first. Or in addition to Um, and I use your rhythm plus and then a plus plus quite a bit or even a one day hormone plus. But I like being able to look at the six point salivary cortisol, but also being able to look at the sex hormones and to figure out, you know, what's going on with the for example, as well as melatonin.
0: One thought is, you know, you can, if you have somebody who's really struggling with metabolic and say they come in and they already have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes and, you know, you're really wanting to get the ship moving in the other direction quickly, you can glean a a lot of nutritional information from a test like the NutriVal, but are there other go-tos that you would immediately bring on board from, say, intervention standpoint, a supplement standpoint for that type of a patient?
2: Oh, absolutely. This is what I usually do. Usually on my first day on my first visit, I give patients big handouts and I write it for each patient on what their dietary protocol, their nutrition is going to be. So I start a lot out with food. To me, that's that's the foundation. And I always say, you know, our food speaks to our genes. And it's really important that we also know that because when we are ingesting that food, if we know that it's going to provide information to our genes or it's going to be anti-inflammatory, for example, if you know it, it increases the effect majorly. So that is sort of my baseline. But in many cases, if someone, just thought of someone as you mentioned that, for example, someone who's a type 2 diabetic, and let's say they're maybe even on two or three, two oral and one injection prescription hypoglycemic uh, medication. In many cases, what I'll do is I'll start them on the diet and lifestyle modification off the bat, no problem. And I may even add one or two things. For example, these are my go-tos in many cases, even before I measure, or I'll say, you know, get your blood drawn and then start this, Our magnesium. And I also really like the combination of like your omega-3s together with chromium or yeah, alpha-lipoic acid or all three. But in many cases, I may just start magnesium and maybe omega-3s. Or maybe I'll just start magnesium. It really depends on each patient. Because what I try to to instill in them is the fact that food is powerful. You know, food is not just powerful as information, but it's powerful in terms of decreasing inflammation. And I want them to understand just how much they have within their reach. Because we've been conditioned to believe that it's a pill for a nil. And that, you know, you have to go on medication to do anything in, in medicine. And I believe the opposite is true. I spend more time taking my patients off of prescription drugs than I do prescribing them. But it's really important that they understand just how powerful their lifestyle, their thoughts, what do they do to relax, you know, what they put in their mouth, just how much an effect that can have on their physiology as well as on their diseases.
1: Right. 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 And, you know, we did a whole episode on trace minerals and magnesium in general, and, you know, the concept of the omegas being anti inflammatory and even obesity being an inflammatory disease. But, you know, with all of those nutritional interventions, how do you clinically support the HPA axis? Do you use adaptogens? Do you just do lifestyle modifications? Because we know the HPA axis is tightly related to what Mm -hmm. we're talking about.
2: Absolutely. I do it all. (laughs) I have to say that I have like my three pronged approach, my four pronged approach to the HPA axis, and diet is key. But even before diet, and I used to start with diet, I now do it a little bit differently. I start with lifestyle modifications when it comes to the HPA axis. And it doesn't mean that I'm not doing both at the same time, but it's someone that, you know, they're cortisol to the roof, and you know it, and they're sort of, you know, on, and you can see the impending doom coming down the pike, so to yep. speak. I need to really instill in them just how important lifestyle modification is and that I can give them the best supplements in the world the best adaptogens which I use a lot of but if they don't change the way they see themselves in the world they, the way they act and if they don't start some things some protocols or some exercises you know I'm, I'm exercise in parentheses, to really help you know decrease the effects of the stress on their body or even just decrease the stress in their lives, period, Mm -hmm. that no matter what else I do, I can't get them totally well. They may get a little bit better, but we're not going to get them totally, totally better. So I spend a lot of time really talking about what is it going to take, you know, to to help you change? Because nobody... I mean, it's it's even when we want to change, it's not easy. And I've I've been impressed just how much that can do. So for example you know, if it's the type A person who's just go, 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 and we know that their cortisol and their adrenaline is through the roof, I really have to figure out what type of interventions can I do with them that's gonna help them. Are they someone that can meditate? Are they gonna do Tai Chi, Jigong, you know, get a massage? What is it going to take to really help them? Heart reverability is great. I've been I found that it works for most patients, but you really have to instill in them just how important it is and the timing. The other thing I've used quite a bit with patients is Stephen Forge's work and, and his whole research on the polyvagal theory um, and really trying to help patients understand how is even the vagus nerve has two branches, you know, the ventral and the dorsal. And if they're not balanced, they can still be in this sympathetic-like sort of state. So that has been, it has totally changed my practice. It has been one of the best things that I've been able to do because there's simple things that patients can do. It only takes them, you know, about five minutes It'll be five minutes when they get up in the morning, five minutes in the evening, and of course, exercise is really important. And it's the type of exercise, you know, we have to gauge it for each patient, sure. but also what they like to do. You know, I always tell my patients, I'm not a gym person, I hate going <laughs> to the gym, mm-hmm. and I won't go, but I love being active. You know, I love to do stand up paddle boarding, and I really like Pilates, and I love to go hiking and swimming. And so it's and dancing. So it's really important that I figure out, how can I get you to move? You know, what do you like to do? Because we now have studies showing that even just contracting your muscles is considered exercise in terms of someone who's insulin resistant, for example. Yeah. So to me, that psychological piece and really balancing the HPA axis is key, especially if that's one of the reasons that is causing their, their insulin to be up or, you know, their glucose to go up. You know, I remember when I was a non-profit and patients would come in, especially diabetics and you know, the type 2 diabetics, uncontrolled. And I would ask them, you know, why do you think the diabetes is so out of control? And they're like, well, it's not what I'm eating. I think it's the stress, or it's, you know, my husband's abusive, or I'm having problems with my kids. And sometimes I'd say, is that really, is that a little bit of a scapegoat, or is that really true? And now I realize, Yes, it is definitely true. It yeah. doesn't mean that we didn't need to change their habits and right. that they had, you know, they didn't know the difference between a low-carb and a high-carb meal, right? right? Or the fact that they may have been cheating a little. But the part about stress, Is major, 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 major. Right.
1: The body keeps score. Right. Even.
2: Yes. 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 It's one of my favorite books.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting because you know it's so often that we hear kind of the clinicians' lament of you know well the patient's just not compliant. And I I think what I'm hearing in that is you're really bringing forward the aspect of you know we as clinicians also have to become very creative at knowing our patient and knowing what are the ways that are gonna get them moving. What are the ways that are gonna get them you know to to Relax and adjust their HPA axis rather than just, you know, prescribing a regimen that they may or may not be able even to adhere to.
1: Right. Like to meet them where they are in essence, right?
2: Yes, exactly. Because I, I mean, there are some patients that don't want to change and don't want to do anything, right? But even in those patients, I, I'll, I'll question them. I'll say, well, are you ready to accept the consequences? Right. Because mm-hmm. I can predict what's going to happen to you within five years if you continue on this path. And maybe no one's ever said that to you, but I'm here to say it Tough because one. we now have the technology. We know, you know, if someone's an control diabetic with a hemoglobin A1C of 8.9. Within five years, most likely they're going to have a stroke. Mm. And so I'll ask, you know, are you ready to not see your kid graduate from high school? If you do, you're in a wheelchair where your brain still maybe knows what's going on, but your body doesn't. And you, you know, you're hemiparetic and you can't move half of your body. I think it's, and then I don't do that to sort of take away their hope, but I do that to be realistic and empower them to realize that there are changes that they can make and there are things that they can do that will completely change that, that their outcome, because most patients think that it's sort of uh, in the ethers, right? It's above them. There's nothing they can do. And that once you have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, that's it. You're stuck to it. No? Well, Not taking ICD-10 codes aside, right? Because (laughs) with ICD-10 codes, once you have the diagnosis, you can say it's controlled, but you can't say they don't have it, unfortunately. right? You know, I tell my patients there is a cure for type 2 diabetes, but it's, you know, and and it's not in a lot of drugs, and sometimes we use them too. You know, I have patients that are on both, but it's really about lifestyle and figuring out what was the trigger and reversing that and really helping you to figure out what does your body need you know, yeah. to reverse it and to be
0: healthy. Yeah, and I think it's it's really challenging too, especially in, in today's sort of fast paced you know, work, work, work type A culture. You know, I'm just thinking of one person in mind, you know, we'll we'll call him M. Chapman. Or maybe that's not HIPAA <laughs> compliant, maybe we'll call him Michael C. He's but the worst. You know, he um uh, you know, it's it's really hard to sometimes do all the things that this particular person knows maybe he should be doing from a, a meditation standpoint, from right. an exercise standpoint, and so so, you yeah. know, to, to readjust that focus on on what what the perspective is, five years, 10 years, mm-hmm. 20 years, and also to, to become creative about, you know, this is this is what you have. How are you going to adjust it?
2: Right. like you know, you know what I always say to my patients is, okay, this is what you need to do. How can you help me devise a plan for you to do it? Nice. Because nobody's perfect. <laughs> We're all going to cheat. And I, and I tell them, I cheat. And I'm sure you do too. But my job is not to tell you not to cheat because that goes against human nature. My job is to tell you how do you cheat smartly because you undoubtedly will cheat. But when you have that piece of cake, what else can you do to offset that? Well, you can eat a little bit more protein. You can eat a little bit more healthy fat. You can eat a you know, big piece or a big plate of veggies or a combination thereof. Right. Because it's not about, no, don't do it. Because we are going to do it. I do it. Everybody does it. It's more, what can we do to offset that time when you do cheat? And I'm not saying you're going to cheat all the time. But I'm saying, pick your battles. When you do, enjoy it to the fullest. But then let's see, what else can we add so that there's less of a downstream effect on your body?
0: Well, and with that, you know, speaking of cheating, I guess I have a a question. Do you like sandwiches?
2: (laughs) Well, I've had to adjust sort of my definition of sandwiches. Because first of all, you know, I grew up eating what we call them suns, which is basically a sandwich, but it's made with a sweeter type of bread and it's homemade bread. And they were very good, but I have not eaten bread in ages. So now what I call a sandwich is basically making something we call bolo, which is kind of like a thick tortilla, but it's made out of corn and it's corn that I grow and then you can put anything. So imagine two pieces, like just like as if you were going to make a quesadilla, for example. Okay. Right with a tortilla, this would be bolo, which is a, is a corn, say, like a thick corn tortilla, but it's a little, it's made a little bit differently. And then you can put anything you want in the middle. And my favorite, which I'm not always allowed to do, Mm -hmm. uh, just because of some of the things that we were talking about, you know. (laughs) Um, My favorite is our cheese um, from the island of St. George. We're famous for our cheese because we have the most green pastures and different shades of green in all the nine islands. And so our cheese is really famous because of that, because most of our cattle is all range fed, so they eat all these different colors of green grasses. And so we have very tasty cheese, and it's raw milk cheese. Of course, it's a fermented product, and, you know, I can't do dairy, but I will cheat on that cheese, unfortunately. And so my favorite is to put, like, a layer of cheese and then a layer of a torta. And a torta is where you beat some eggs and you add lots of parsley and maybe green onions and maybe some other things. Like I usually like putting finely chopped kale. And then little pieces of meat or fish and any leftover that you have. And you make like an omelet, but it's not an omelet. It's more like you make like these little, like pancakes almost, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they're with egg, And of course, everything else I said, and you put that in the middle. So you put the the bolu, which is, you know, the corn bread type, and then you put a layer of cheese and then... The sauce, and then another layer of cheese and then another piece of bowl and that is
0: delicious. Mm. That sounds delicious. That does sound and delicious. Yes, I will absolutely have one when I come out to visit you. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yes, of course. I promise to make you one.
1: <laughs> thanks, actually you, Patty. Thanks, Phil well, Actually, knowing you in my head, I thought you were going to say that you put just a boatload of broccoli on that sandwich but I'm glad to hear there's <laughs> cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes
2: I'll have the broccoli on the side.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> well, and I also wanted to give you a minute to, to talk a little bit about what you've been up to what you're doing we certainly you know big time and as far as involved in institute for functional medicine and, and a4m and, and lecturing all the time and and you know people could certainly know you from there but uh what are some of the other things if you if you want to share what what you've been doing
2: sure no that i would love that yes i lecture for ifm for the, the hormone module and also i'm doing part of their mentorship program and then at the IFRM, but also at MMI, which is the Metabolic Medical Institute, which is a fellowship. But I've been also really working hard on my own certification program that you mentioned called the Soldado Certification. I did the first part, which is uh, the Soldado Hormonal Symphony, and now I'm working on the second part, which is going to be more gut, and I don't have a total... We've been working on what to call it, because I want it to be a little bit unique, so... We thought about defend the defend symphony, and I'm not quite sure what the name what we're going to do. But I've been doing that, and I'm also been working on. I just finished another chapter in a textbook that's going to be on nutritional influences on hormones. Should be coming out soon. Great. And I'm also trying really hard to develop more of my mentoring because one thing I noticed with both the fellowship and also ISM. And this is one of the reasons why AFM has developed their, their mentorship program. But especially at A4M and at MMI, I see a lot of new docs that even finish the fellowship, but they're really afraid to start applying this clinically. You know, they don't really know sort of what to do next. And I think I was lucky enough to do the fellowship while I was working, and I just automatically started integrating it. And it's one of the reasons why I did the fellowship over two years because I wanted to not just learn something in a lecture, but to apply it. And I, it seems like it's becoming harder and harder for the docs nowadays to do that. And sometimes they're a little bit afraid. You know, they feel like maybe they're going to be judged, you know, by their, their fellows, or I should say they're judged by their community more so than fellows in the sure. fellowship anyway. Hey. Sure. Uh, but their colleagues. And they seem to be a little bit lost in terms of, you know, what do I do next? How do they, I apply it? okay, I understand this, but now, you know, it takes them a giant step to be able to put it in clinical practice. And to me, I love doing that. That's yeah, that's fun. Yeah, that's right up and your alley. And being able to see, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> being able to see like, okay, what what is inhibiting you? You know, what's keeping you from doing it? So that's why I started doing the mentoring and I love it. It's just so rewarding and it's so nice to be able to, kind of see, you know, where someone is, and be able to say, okay, well, this is what I would suggest you do, and let's go to it next. Whether it's in developing sort of their own way and their own little niche, so to speak, or it's actually helping them with patients. because that's either what we'll uh, we'll do also, is they'll send me cases that they're a little bit stuck on, and then we'll work on them together. And that's been really rewarding. Yay. And I will say, and of course, I'm still working on my on my retreats,
1: but you guys oh, have to come to one of these. That's years. it. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> and I will say, you are a good mentor. You've been an excellent mentor to Michael and I as far as, you know, advancing in functional medicine and all that you've taught us yeah, and kinda helped us along. And so we're honored to be your friends and we're oh. honored that you chose to be on the podcast with us today. And as always, it's so fun talking to you, Philomena. Yeah,
0: it's always just an absolute joy. So so thank you so much for coming on with us. Oh,
2: thank you. It's my pleasure. And you know, you have no idea. Idea how much I learned from you guys
1: so Aww. thank you well great we'll talk again soon Philomena yes please take care wow yeah. we, we literally just beamed her back to the Azores with that little magical sound yeah I know I didn't even mean to I just hit the wrong
0: button on this board here I was trying to hit, hit that one and
1: oh. now she's gone I don't <laughs>
0: I can try and bring her back but it's just
1: too many buttons too many buttons hmm. I'm going to have to, but to transport someone, call her
0: and apologize. If, if
1: you're going to send someone that far, do you have to push the button really hard? Well, I
0: did. Oh. So that may have been the problem. Mm, I didn't realize it. they were that responsive, too. <laughs> I don't need to read the instructions on this thing. <laughs>
1: Probably a good idea.
0: Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to put the I and dig in with GI inflammation.
1: Guts on fire. Angry. Hmm. Angry gut. Ouch. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Are you really really planting your own corn there? That's really what's happening there. You plant yeah, your own Yeah, yeah, I do. And you make your own
2: little <laughs> tortilla yeah, yeah, things. Get out of here. Yes, yeah, yeah. What? I do. As She's a matter of fact, today I was just going to say, Hey, next time I, I see know. you, if you remind me, if you remind me, I'll take you some cornmeal. Yes, yeah, organic corn. Cool. That would be awesome. And maybe okay.
0: some of that cheese.
2: <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely.